0: Hi, this is Ben Cutchins, I'm the Director of Photography for The White Lotus, and this is The Go Creative Show.
1: Hello and welcome to The Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. My name is Ben Consoli, and today we speak with Ben Cutchins, the Director of Photography of The White Lotus on HBO Max. Ben, welcome back to the show. How are you?
0: I'm great, man. So good to be here. Thanks Thanks for having me back.
1: Of course. Well, we had you for Ozark. I think we had you maybe twice for Ozark, um, which I absolutely loved. And The White Lotus, my God, what a follow up. This show is insane. It's an insane show. Um, (laughs) It's just awesome. and I cannot wait to talk to you about it. So thanks for being here. Before we get there, very quickly, want to mention our sponsor for today, MZ Empowering Filmmakers. Of course, follow us on your favorite podcast app, um, as well as Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. All things Go Creative Show at gocreativeshow.com. So, like I was saying at the top, this show is just insane, and and it's crazy because like everyone is telling me you have to see White Lotus, you have to see White Lotus, you have to see White Lotus. You're gonna love it. It's your style. It's your type of comedy, and I have to say it it just totally, totally delivered. I am completely obsessed as of. As of taping, I haven't seen the whole thing. I'm missing. I'm, I haven't seen the last couple of episodes, um, but all I'm thinking about all day is going back home at night and watching the next episode of The White Lotus. It has really struck a chord with people. Um, what a great show to be part of! And th- I'm curious, your first initial involvement with this, and what kind of attracted you to this story.
0: Well, you know, I I don't know mike white before this i had we'd never met um and he they sent me the scripts i know the producer and i know one of the producers somebody i've worked with before and that i i was hoping to work with again um and and he introduced us i read the scripts and the scripts are as bizarre as the show is you know it's sort of like <laughs> yeah. you read the scripts and i was like i don't i don't know what the tone of this show is you know i really had a lot of questions for mike and uh and mike is just a genius writer so when i when i got on the phone with him or you know got on zoom with him and you know because everything happens on zoom these days um when i got on the the zoom with him and i just started asking him questions like he he knew all of these characters inside and out there was no there was no question that he couldn't answer everything was very dynamic and interesting and uh and he's just a trip, you know. He's he's so like living all of these characters, and he's very interested in the sort of nuance that we all live in. You know, I think I think we all kind of live in a fancy version of our lives, and then there's the reality. You know, I don't I don't want to spoil the show for you, man. You haven't seen it, so like, <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> I want you to
1: speak tough. freely because believe me, it wouldn't be the first time shows are spoiled for me, and it's totally yeah. fine. I don't think it would take anything away. However. <laughs> Um, the Mike we're talking about is Mike White, the director and writer. And I, I, I can imagine in a show like this where he has such a clear vision of who the characters are. Did, were you able to have some freedom in the cinematography to kind of maybe take these characters in different directions or try new things? Or is Mike the type of director and writer that is very, um, uh, that, that wants his characters be to be portrayed in a specific way?
0: No, I think, I think he's really open, and I think that that's the sort of genius of him. is He's very open to what the actors bring. He's very open to what I bring. He was he was from the beginning very interested in what my take on it and how I thought the show should look and feel and and the color palette and 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 how the camera moved and where the camera was in the room. He was very open to that collaboration. It's sort of you know one of those those dream people that you get to work with who sort of lets you do whatever you want to do and and is really is really interested and engaged with what it is that that we're doing with the camera um he he does know his characters very well but i think he's also interested in like okay well what's my take on it you know how do how do i see our you know our way into this world how are we finding these characters um That's that's gonna
1: make you feel good as a cinematographer, just knowing that you're going to be heading into a project with so much collaboration.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that that's what we're all kind of looking for, you know? Um, And I, and I think that's the beauty of working with somebody like Mike is that I really trust him uh, in terms of him knowing who these characters are and, and what their arc is and where they're going and, and the ability to ask them a question at any point about um, whose perspective we might want to be in or, or what the scene is really about. And he he can answer it really simply. There's no, um, there's no hemming and hawing and like, Oh, let me get back to you. You know, like he, he he's not going to call the writer and ask him, like he, he, he's been thinking about this a lot, you know, and he probably stayed up the, the night before thinking about the scenes that we're doing and, and what the the nuances of, of the scene are between the characters and those sort of deep interpersonal relationships that are really what interests me in photography you know oh, yeah. how how can i tell those stories of those sort of very nuanced interpersonal relationships
1: well how much do the characters play a role in your decisions on lighting and camera movement and all of that like are you do you get so granular that you're thinking about particular lighting and particular lenses and cameras per character
0: yeah i mean i think for me it's become a little bit more looking at the overall uh the overall show and the overall arc of character um as opposed to photographing each character differently all the time i think yeah. to me it's more about what is this scene about um and how can i best tell the story of that scene you know if each scene has three acts um within the structure of a sh- you know a show and then you have all these different scenes that have three acts how can i best tell the story of of that scene um, you know, I think that there is sometimes you you tend to favor different lenses for different characters, but I, I don't really. I operate from a very like sort of gut instinct place on that. I don't sort of make rules and write down. You know, like we only shoot uh, Jennifer Coolidge on a fifty millimeter. You know, like yeah. Um, I definitely do it early on in production. Start coming up with ideas about what rules might be, um, but I don't ever stick to them. Like wholeheartedly, you know, it's it's more of an idea. Like, um, it might be nice to be with this character on a wider lens throughout the series, so that we feel more of the environment because they are engaging with the world more than this character, who's more in their head. Um, you know, something as as simple as that. But those are those are rules that are meant to be broken as you go along.
1: Yeah. And to bring everybody up to speed, the show's called The White Lotus. It's on HBO. It follows the vacations of various hotel guests over the span of a week as they relax and rejuvenate in paradise. But with each passing day, a darker complexity emerges in these picture-perfect travelers, the hotel's cheerful employees, and the idyllic locale itself. I love these synopsis because like, you read that and you're like, I don't really want to watch that. But then you but then you see the trailer, you see the characters, you see the first five minutes of the show, and you are totally, totally drawn in. And I, I have a feeling that anybody listening to this is at least aware of the show or has seen the whole thing. Um, but when I watch the show, the cinematography for me feels voyeuristic in a way. I feel like I'm peering into these characters as if I were watching a reality show or even a documentary at some points where... I'm just watching these characters do their thing. And I I almost feel like I shouldn't be. You know, I, I feel like I'm seeing something that I really shouldn't be seeing. It's almost too personal in a way sometimes. And I'm curious how you would describe the cinematography. Am I on the right track here with this voyeuristic feel?
0: I think it, it threads an interesting line in that... Um You know, similar to Ozark, I think I wanted to create something that was a little uncomfortable to watch, you know, and Mike's writing is very uncomfortable. So my cinematography (laughs) and Mike's writing combined is only going to make an audience feel incredibly uncomfortable. Um, So I think the idea of like really leaning into that and leaning into the idea of perspective you know, because I, I think there's times in the show that are very subjective. And it's interesting because I've heard that comment multiple times that, you know, we're sort of peering into their lives and it's voyeuristic. And I, and I think that, you know, it, it very much uh, fluctuates between feeling like a very subjective experience and then being objective and stepping back and feeling like we're, we are voyeuristic and, and we're watching them and we're watching something that we shouldn't be watching. And I think that's a combination of the camera work um, there are very specific choices that we make where we where we move the camera. Uh, we step the camera back and we look through foreground. Um, you know, for example, the beginning of episode that sorry, the end of episode one. The camera pulls back out of the room and you start to watch this couple have sex, and the camera lingers outside. and And it goes from you know a more subjective in the room experience and slowly pulls back. And so you realize you're outside the room and it stays there for almost a solid minute. Yeah. You know, I'm glad that in editing he kept that shot there much longer than I thought we were going to. Um, but I'm really glad that he did. Cause it very much like uh, sends home that message that we are watching or somebody is watching. You, you know, somebody is going to die. So who are we, you know, whose perspective is this? Is this a, you know, is this a a criminal is this is this us you know and we're suddenly watching this couple start to have sex and it feels like maybe we're intruding um and and all these couples are i mean all these couples all these people are sort of so messy and kind of gross but then the genius of mike white is that they are also all of us you know they're he is self-admittedly all of those people you know and has has behaved in all of those ways and i think we all have we've all behaved in ways which we kind of looked at ourselves later and we're sort of like, Oh, I, did I do that? Did I, did I just, was I just rude to that waiter? You know, um, what yes. was, you know, and, and am, am I the toxic person in this relationship? You know what I mean? Like, um, I think all of those sort of questions, Mike is, you know, very self-effacing. If you read interviews with him, he's very much like, yeah, yeah, these are, you know, we're, we're all, we're all horrible people. And I'm just sort of turning a mirror on, you know, on you and, in the most basic way. Um, but, you know, I think the idea of like making an making an audience deeply uncomfortable and not just to make them uncomfortable, but I, I think that, you know, we sort of tend to look at um, uncomfortability as, as a failure but I, but I think when you're uncomfortable, you're actually like kind of maybe learning the most about yourself and the world, um, through those moments of being uncomfortable and seeing yourself reflected in people that are kind of awful, <laughs> um, you know, that maybe, maybe those are the moments where you actually like reflect on yourself and maybe you should be nicer to your waiters. What I love about
1: the, sh- the uncomfortability in the show is that I feel like there's been this trend and a lot of, um, pop culture in general, but movies and TV shows where you kind of like lean into awkward moments and it's funny and it's been done a lot in the past few years, but not like the white Lotus. There's an awkwardness in that show that is, you're not really laughing at it. You're almost like embarrassed by it because like you said, it brings something out in yourself in those moments. I was just having that uh, just today, driving here to, to the studio I'm talking to this. There's a service in my hometown where you can call to get like trees cut. So if you have trees in your neighborhood that are overgrown, you call and they just do it. And I've called like a hundred times in the past, <laughs> in the past, um, like uh, four or five months. And I was talking to the woman today, and I'm thinking to myself when I'm talking to her, I'm like, I think I'm the guy asking for the 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 uh, pineapple room or whatever it was. Um, I was yeah. seriously thinking to myself, I'm like am I am I like a, a little bit of a percentage of that person right now talking to this yeah. person? Am I, what am I doing? And it really did bring out a perspective that I was not expecting. I was not expecting that yeah. scene to pop out in that conversation. But I think it lends itself to the fact that when we watch these characters, we are embarrassed by them, we're intrigued by them, they're familiar to us, they repulse us. I love it. And from a cinematography standpoint... Can you tell us some of the ways that you are making us feel uncomfortable? You know, it, are there some tips? Are there some things that you are doing that are tricks of the trade, tools in the lighting, camera motion, ca- uh, lensing, that make you feel uncomfortable as you watch?
0: Well, I think. For me, it's very instinctual. Um, those choices of how I'm how I'm creating that environment. I think that there are some tricks. I mean, the, I think the interesting thing about this show is that it takes place um, in Hawaii, which is like we should all be happy and joyous and and yeah. and enjoying the wonderful view of the dolphins, you know, jumping out of the water and snorkeling. And you know, how could there be anything, you know? bad happening here so that was really the exciting part for me is how to create this very warm kind of bright tonality you know very warm tonality much brighter than my usual work and uh and still create something that feels uncomfortable that has a darkness and you know i think so the thing for me is is one of the things that i'm doing lighting wise is always creating um some shadow in the frame um Finding, finding a way either with the lighting or with where the camera is positioned or a combination of the two to create some darker part of the frame, you know? And it, and it being why, that that there should be some brighter part of the frame as well, that there should be some, you know, some contrast there between the light and the dark. But, you know, really leaning into the idea that, that um, you know, people are kind of half lit and that people have a dark side and a shadow side on their face um, in the most simplistic way way you know that's sort of what i'm always looking for is that there's some shape to the light and some Mm. some feeling of the light and the dark just as mike's characters are holding the light and the dark simultaneously and how do you hold those two things simultaneously is something that i'm always looking for um and this was a little brighter than what i usually do and definitely a lot warmer than what i usually do um but I really believe in like a strong color palette. And I think in some ways, you know, like the the very blue of Ozark was, yeah. was a way to create an uncomfortability and create a very hostile environment. And in some ways, I lean just really hard in the opposite direction on this show. And I think it helps create something uncomfortable, too, even though these warm colors are, you know, usually what's associated with a... Um, with a rom-com or, you know, bright and warm, you know, this is every rom-com, um, you know, but I, but I really like the idea of a thriller that has the, you know, this, the element of the thriller in the show that, that very much leans into that extremely warm color palette that I think ultimately is, is kind of jarring and uncomfortable, you know, cause you're not really expecting to be this, this thrown off in this color palette, you know, that, that there is and there is a lot of shadow in the show still and, and and sort of as much as I can get away with you know I think I think it's important to tell every every story individually and, and on its own merits and I would never photograph two stories the same way you know that um, there's there's no version of of this show that looks like Ozark you know if I just yeah. came in trying to like implement a style into a show then um, that would be so uninteresting. And I, I just think, you know, you sort of honor each story.
1: There's such a fine line with color, too, because you can't you can't go so far that it feels like you're it it, it leaves all reality in a yeah. show like Ozark and also this show, too. Um, y- You have to feel like you have to recognize these environments. You have to feel like you could be there. You could go to these places. Um. In order for it to work, I think, and I think you, you really have a, you really tuned into how color helps support a story helps you make feel uh, helps you feel a certain way as as a viewer, but also not pushing it too far. That's a really fine line, I think. And can you talk to me about the white Lotus, the color palette and how you kind of landed where you landed? Because it is very warm.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, so for me, it's a very nuanced conversation, including lots of different variations that nobody will ever see. Um, and, and it's important to me that it does feel grounded. And I think that's one of the things that's, um, that the show does successfully, is it feels kind of grounded with all of these insane characters. And, you know, it still somehow feels like we're in the real world, um, but feels a little bit elevated. The view feels a little bit elevated. And I think that, you know, the thing that I'm constantly thinking about is, what is your memory of your Hawaiian vacation look like? What is your memory of the time that you went to the lake and felt really scared? Um, Mm -hmm. But those are the things that I'm chasing after. after. You know, I I think our dreams um, have a color palette to them. You know, I think our dreams, I mean, my dreams are cinematic. I, I don't know that everyone's dreams are, but, you know, my dreams when, when, when things are messed up and, and, and disturbing are, are dark. And, um, and I don't always, I can't really see clearly what's happening. You know, maybe I'm looking through a window, but I can't see exactly what's happening on the other side of the window. Um, and, and there's a strong color palette to it. So my memory of Hawaii has a very warm tint to it. That's sort of bleached out and, and beautiful. Um, and, and I think that that's what I wanted to evoke, you know, like you, what is your memory of being on vacation. Um, cause I think that that's a more powerful way to, to reach you as an audience member. And I think it really, it, it to me, it's how I know how to draw an audience in. you know, to, the, to make you feel safe and comfortable that this is, you, this is all happening in your own mind. You know, this mm-hmm. is all, this all feels like that, uh, that time that you went to visit your sister in Hawaii, you know, it's, it's, this is your, this is your memory. There, there's nothing to be afraid of. Come on in, you know, the water's fine. <laughs>
1: and, that That's an interesting approach. I, I like that idea a lot about tuning into the memories of a location or the memories of something because you do remember things differently than it
0: was. Yeah. I mean, I'm, everything in the world is happening through our perception and our perspective. And then, you know, take that one layer further. And now our perception is, is a sort of distorted view of how we felt about that time in our lives you know did you did you feel safe and comfortable did you feel alone did you feel warm and surrounded by love you know um, how does it and and how does that affect your memory of it you know so you're taking this this real event in your life and then you're you know taking it layers and layers down as it gets further in your memory um, and I, I, I don't think that it's something that I ever consciously, uh, decided to do it's just something that like kind of spoke to me as I started experimenting with film way back in the day and started pushing and pulling film uh, overexposing underexposing uh, you know getting getting really grainy images using really fast ISO films um, and how all of that sort of like was evocative of a, of a feeling um, so it was never a conscious decision uh, to sort of start doing that, and I think it's only in more recent years that I've looking back on it, you know, and I asked myself, well, why am I doing? <laughs> people started asking me why I was doing it, and I had to start thinking about it um, and i and I really feel like it's an important element to to share with the audience
1: well why why did you do it? You said you were thinking on it when people asked you why what was what did you find
0: uh, I mean, it's my way to connect with people. You know, I think we're all looking to connect, um, and how we do that is different for all of us. Um, and I think we all have like a very unique perspective and it's interesting because it's unique, but it's also a shared perspective. It's, it's really like, you know, it's all of our perspective. And then, so then how can I connect all of us, you know, through, through an experience, um, without getting too philosophical, how do, how do we connect
1: there's a lot of dialogue in the White Lotus yeah. and a lot of dialogue scenes. I mean, there's not a lot of action. There's not a lot of visual effects. It's 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 almost like a stage play in a way at times. Talk to me about your techniques for dialogue, lighting, camera. What's the best approach? And I know every every story is different. Every film, you know, every project's different, but for the White Lotus, and maybe there are just some General must haves for you at all for all dialogue scenes. But we've got a lot of cinematographers out there listening, and dialogue is something we have to do in in a lot of our projects. So, what is your kind of default way of handling dialogue? And then, what were the tweaks for
0: The White Lotus? I mean, I feel like the greatest realization that I had as a cinematographer is that it's not about me, Um, it's really about the audience's experiences, experience of the actors. Um, and that that really is how a film lives or dies. Um, how the how the show f- looks um, is not as important as the story, and how the show f- feels is maybe a little bit more important than you know how it looks. So that yeah. so the feeling, the overall feeling, is something that I'm uh, constantly chasing and protecting. And as I've worked more and more, I get less protective of the quote-unquote photography um, and chasing some perfection perfectionist idea of photography. And really, like, am I doing a good job on a whole Um, and creating a a feeling for this? You know, five-minute scene of dialogue where it's really not about what the camera is doing. Um, And then within that, you know, within an over the shoulder and and a single, how do I create a nuanced? version how do i how do i tell a little story with with the camera um and that can be a choice of center punching the actor um or going a little bit off you know or maybe having the look room on the wrong side of the frame you know quote unquote wrong side Mm -hmm. uh creating an element of of tension and uncomfortability between the actors you know as if if there's some tension that's ramping up i might ask the camera operator to just slowly pivot over and put the look room on the quote-unquote wrong side um that's something that i did in several scenes in the sh- in the show as the conversation got more and more uncomfortable and those are things that you shouldn't notice watching it <laughs> you know those yeah. are those are imperceptible things to 99 of people watching it and probably you would only notice if you took a still at the beginning of the scene and a still at the end of the scene, you might notice that there's like a very slight shift. And I might I, I might shift it over and then shift it back. So um, there's very subtle things that you can do. And then also lensing. Um, how, are we, uh, how are we seeing these characters in this five-minute dialogue scene? Um, is the background, you know, are we on longer lenses and the background is completely fuzzed out? Are we on wider lenses and closer in? Is my T-stop kind of closed down? So that the world is still present, or you know, sometimes you're in a conversation and the whole world falls away. Is is that the feeling? You know, that that I want the audience to have, or do I want it to be like, wow, that what's all that action in the background, and that that's sort of part of the scene as well? Do I want a deeper depth of field, um, so I feel that action in the background, or you know, or like I said before, is the world completely falling away? So there's all these like very small choices that that build to a bigger whole. You know, and and in a dialogue scene. Once you've sort of nailed down what the blocking is, okay, you know, she's going to come in, she's going to stand here for the first five lines of dialogue, and then and then they're going to sit, and they're going to kind of face off, and then, you know, are we going to slowly close in? Are we going to maybe we're doing a five-minute slow push-in, you know, rather than a lens change um, to cut to a closer shot? You know, so there's all those sort of choices that we're making that affect the greater whole, and as an audience member, you're not going to notice all of them. Uh, hopefully, but but they're going to help tell that story of what it is that's happening. You know, if that camera pushes in imperceptibly during the scene, it's going to create a different feeling than if you're cutting from a 25 mil two shot to a 50 mil to ultimately, you know, a 65 close up. You know, that's going to be a very different feeling than having like a slow push. So, you know, those are the, my approach to dialogue is really like, Big picture, give the actors the stage, you know, create space for them. Don't. uh, I think the number one thing that I had to stop, I had to teach myself to stop doing was sort of nitpicking things in the frame, you know, going in and changing props. I I very much work with second team. I try to see all of the the problems that could arise um, while I'm setting up. Oh, that, you know, the sun's going to hit through that window in about an hour we might be in that close-up for an hour. I don't want to be an hour into the take and then have to come in and have the grips put up a flag. Like, I'm yeah. going to try to put a flag there, knowing that, like, once the actors come in, this is their space. Um, so trying to do all of those things to create a, a stage for them as well. That it's, you know, once they step on and they sit, sit in, it's 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 their, it's their time, you
1: know? You had mentioned you're trying to stop yourself from... Nitpicking small things. So, is that just your natural inclination?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that I think that we all do. I mean, I you know, I think that my to me, it's very important what's in the frame um, and how it's sort of arranged and where where the audience's eye is going to go. Is it drawn to something that's bright in the background? You know, um, and if it's drawn to something in the background, there should be a good reason that it's being drawn there. You know, yeah. I remember there's like a really interesting experiment that was done and i think i saw it on like uh, there will be blood there's a scene in there will be blood i think you can find it on youtube but it was actually tracking eye movement through a shot you know as the audience looks around and it's oh no way it's, yeah it's super interesting uh, i think they do more i think maybe it's more than there will be blood they do it with several different scenes but they're tracking eye movement on a screen and and i think that that's something i'm always thinking about where is the audience going to be looking in this frame? And if um, if they keep getting drawn to something other than the actor, there should probably be a good reason that it keeps getting drawn there. You know, like, uh, uh, those are the moments where, I think the mo- any moment that draws takes you out of the story and takes you out of the moment with the actors is really, like, you sort of have to reset. You have to, like, recalibrate. Um, you know, the director, Steve McQueen, said that... Uh, you know, he hates editing because every time you cut, you have to like, the audience has to reinvest in the story, you know, mm-hmm. cause you've, our human experience isn't an edit, you know? So, um, and so anything that, that takes you out of it, it's like, then I have to like re you back into, Oh, don't worry. Everything's fine. This is, this is a story and, and you're engaged and this is actually, Oh, this isn't a story. This is real. So anything that, it takes the audience out and is like, oh, look at this beautiful shot or look at this great camera move that we did. Um, if you start thinking about that, then I have to like, <laughs> my next move is I have to reinvest you into this is a real story and you should care. Um, and you're not actually watching your television or watching your movie screen.
1: Let's take a quick break and talk about MZ empowering filmmakers. Now, MZ is a place where you can get filmmaking education at really a high level. And I say that for a couple of reasons. First of all, the, the course selection is awesome. There's so many great courses on there. And it's perfect for people like us here at Go Creative Show because they're talking about directing cinematography, post-production, visual storytelling, everything we want to know. But the other part of the the equation there is not just the topics, but the, the teachers, like, you know, the, the educators, the people that are giving you the information. They have to be engaging. They have to be really good or else you just can't connect with them. You know what I mean? Like for me, I'm much more of a visual learner. I'm not really good at, you know, just even in school, like I I just, I wasn't good at just like sitting in a classroom and listening to a teacher. Like I needed to be engaged in a different level. And MZ is really expert at that because they have teachers and people that are sharing their information that are really good at this. You know what I mean? They're working in the industry. I'm talking to people like Vincent LaFerre, Shane Herbert, Philip Bloom, um, Tom Cross, the editor of La La Land and Whiplash, um, does a course there. There's a brand new course now called um, uh, uh, Indie Film Blueprint, and it's basically a roadmap of how to plan, shoot, and sell your first indie feature. Um, but the, the people that are teaching you are, first of all, expert in their field, working in their field. And just know how to put together a good video, <laughs> really. So, great courses, great teachers, and information that you really wanna know. And it's all there at MZ. It, it really is. And when you become an MZ Pro member, you have access to all of it, which is why I'm an MZ Pro member. And I suggest you do the same, but you don't have to be. You know, you can just buy individual courses, and that's fine really being an MZ Pro member is the best way because then you're using MZ almost like a Netflix where you can just get access to everything. It's all there for you whenever you want, which is which is just great because, you know, our schedules and production are kind of crazy. So you never know. You may have a week off one time and then next thing you know, you're on a feature film. So you just never know. Um, but the good news is uh, MZ has offered our listeners 20% off of their purchase by using promo code GCS. 20 at checkout, GCS20. Whether you're buying an individual course or the pro membership, 20% off GCS20. So it's all there. Go creativeshow.com forward slash MZ, MZ, M Z-E-D, Empowering Filmmakers. What was the camera package you shot the White Lotus on?
0: Um, I knew this was gonna be, you know, the show is 95% handheld. Um, so I chose, you know, the Alexa mini, the classic Alexa mini, um, just because it's smaller. I mean, the, I love the mini LF, but you know, it's even a little bigger. And then the, I didn't need, I didn't need a real shallow depth of field for this. You know, I, I was shooting on the Alexa mini with a combination of different lenses. I had super speeds and Baltars, not, uh, not super Baltars, but the original Baltars, which are like, I'm going to mess this up, but I think that they're from the forties, um, you know, really old class. What,
1: and, yeah, what did you like about them? Uh,
0: the Baltars are really interesting. Uh, they flare really, really well. Like at any shot that you see in the series that has a flare in it, probably I was using a Baltar, you know, because ah. they're just like, there's no coating left on those lenses and they just, they flare beautifully. They have interesting elements to it. So I use those for, for flares, but also for exteriors, um, you know, day exteriors, i found them to be really interesting. Just the fall off around the side was very sort of, um, lyrical. And, and there was more fall off on those lenses than even the super speeds. Um, so use those for, for a lot of the day exteriors, um, where I didn't need a lot of clarity. Um, and then, predominantly i would say 90 percent of it is shot on the super speeds and then occasionally i had some i had some cook s4s you know my philosophy is sort of if you're shooting a very low light scene it's where the lighting is really soft and a little muddy almost you don't want to use a lens that's muddy you don't want to use a lens that's too soft because then there's just no clarity in the image at all so then then i would use the the cook s4s you know which are a little sharper
1: what were some of the instances where you used the Cook S4s like, that were just darker, murkier scenes?
0: You know probably something I, I don't remember a specific scene, but probably anything where I didn't have real control over the lighting to create some real contrast where it was just you know maybe a, a sort of a soft wash of color or you know something like uh, uh, something something in a, say something in a hotel room where it's just a practical on. You know, yeah. um, or something like that, where it's got a little a little bit, maybe not enough, quite enough light on the actor's face, you know, and so then I can still shoot it wide open and and dig out enough detail in their face later. Um, I knew I was going to be kind of digging for detail in the shadows um, and it was pretty underexposed. That's that's where I was using it
1: something I wanted to talk about was your use of the sunrise and sunset across the six episodes. It's it's pretty much one episode per day um, in the week of these people's vacations. And each episode sort of begins in the morning and ends in the evening for the most part. So yeah. you are sort of following the sun throughout the day. Um, and I think there's been some, there, there were some really interesting uses of the actual sun in some of these episodes. And I, I want to talk to you about um, your kind of story arc, the way that you're lighting, the way that you're lensing to kind of give you that sense of an entire day passing throughout an episode.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I really leaned into, you know, the fact that we're in Hawaii, and you have these incredible sort of sunrises and sunsets, and there is a lot of exterior work. Um, and, you know, there's scenes that happen in the morning on the beach, and there's scenes that happen in the evening on the beach. and Uh, and at night on the beach and so like really just leaning into those different times of day and so i was really trying to shoot at those times and then also in the color grading you know emphasizing that feeling you know i mean often we would start shooting a sunset scene at 4 p.m and the sun isn't setting for another three hours so you got to shoot something until the sun goes down um and so you know color timing to like make it all sort of uniform picking which shot I can I can match the lighting to for when the sun is actually going to go down Um, is always is always a challenge but it's something that I'm really up for I think that whenever you listen I don't really light exteriors you know day exteriors I I don't um, there's always like an 18k standing by but I think I turned it on you know one percent of the time if that I, I don't think that there's I think probably in all six episodes I would say there's probably two scenes that are day exterior where I turned on a light. Um, really? and it was it was really only just because I couldn't get enough bounce in there, you know, or or it's an overcast day, so it was, it's not enough contrast and super muddy and flat. Yeah, I just don't I, don't I don't believe it. I don't I don't think that you need it. You know, I sort uh, of
1: remember us talking about this when when you were on for Ozark that you're more yeah. about like you know flagging and crafting the light and just kind of letting the letting the ambience in your space, wherever you're shooting, kind of be your guide.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I very much work in a reductive uh, thing on day exteriors. Um, there's enough light out there in the natural world. You know, you're working with an 800 ISO uh, chip, you know, the native is is 500 or 800 ISO. And uh, you don't need more light. So, so actually what you need to do is shape what's there. And I think the second you turn on an HMI, I find myself like, uh okay well you know now we need to bounce it cuz it's too hard and it looks like a light. I just feel like it's it often looks like a light. And the only time that it doesn't look like a light is if I like, you know, maybe bounce it off of the side of a building or a tree cuz that's what's happening naturally, you know. It's yeah. like once you point a light in there, you have a straight 5600 um color temperature source pointed at something that just looks like an HMI. Um uh so if I am turning something on, I'm Beating the hell out of it, I'm putting it through multiple layers of diffusion. Um, you know, putting a net over part of it, or you know, maybe it, maybe even um, trying to bounce it into some natural fabric. Dion Beebe is somebody that I've always loved his photography, and I, I can never do. I'm not,
1: I'm not familiar. What what is
0: a so, are you so what he, so what he does is he does a lot of bounces. Like for example, this like uh, colored fabric thing hanging on the wall back there. He carry what I've heard is that he carries like tons of swaths of different colors. Um, and, and he'll just lay them on the floor and do like a floor bounce. And like, that's the color that's coming. Like rather than putting gels on lights, he's like using all these swaths of fabric to, to bounce light. And I just find that so fascinating. And it's something that I've I experiment with a little bit occasionally, but I, I understand the philosophy, which is that, you know, there is no there is no light in our world that is a straight 3200 or 5600, you know. So if you turn on a, a tungsten or you turn on an HMI, um, it kind of automatically just looks like a light because it's a regimented thing. If you turn on five tungsten lights, you know, I have uh, I have two practicals on in here right now um and both of them are wildly different color temperatures so yeah. in our natural world there is no daylight that is straight 5600 there is no uh practical that is straight 3200 so just living in that world like i sort of it's the same thing with an hmi in a day exterior like i need to i need to somehow gel it or beat it up or put it through an unbleached muslin you know i mean, just to just to help the younger cinematographers out there who maybe maybe don't have as much experience you know the 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 best thing you can do is start playing with like bleach and unbleached muslin because it has a natural fiber and a texture and a little bit of color to it. So an unbleached muslin has, has a little bit of warmth to it that feels a little bit more like a bounce, a bounce off of a wall that hasn't been painted in 20 years, you know? Um, so, so that's something that just creates a little bit of more of an organic feel.
1: What was the name of that photographer? I want to put it in the show notes.
0: It's it's Dion Beebe. He's a cinematographer. I mean, I think he did like Memoirs of a Geisha and like you know. Oh like, my God! Yes, yeah. of course. He's a very yeah. very talented cinematographer.
1: I was thinking like photos as you were saying oh, photography, yeah, yeah. and I wasn't yes, I yes. wasn't connecting it. But yeah, of course, I'll put that in the show notes so you guys can check it out as well. But um, so we talked quite a bit about the exteriors and and your approach to that we and we actually dive pretty deep into that in the Ozark episode. So you guys can check those out on the website as well. But I want to talk about the interiors because the entire series is shot on location. There's no stage work. Um, You are using real locations. You are in Hawaii. You are in an actual hotel. And with that comes shooting interiors in real hotel rooms. So you don't have the luxury of being on set and fake ceilings and wild walls. You have none of that. You're actually shooting in these rooms. Um, Tell me about that experience and what were some of the challenges you had to face?
0: I mean, <laughs> it was something that I was worried about from the beginning, you know, Why? knowing that, well, you know, a cinematographer's worst nightmare is a low ceiling. You know, um, if you don't, if you have a low ceiling and you're, you can't light from the windows or from a practical, there's really nowhere to hide lights. So you're just sort of at the mercy of whatever's happening in the room. Um, you know, so most of those hotel rooms are on like the fifth or sixth floor, Um and the weather changes very rapidly in Hawaii you're in sun you're in shade you're in sun you're in cloud and now there's a rainstorm you know so so even the light that's coming in is constantly changing um, the, the not only the intensity of it but also the color of it you know the color of the sun behind a cloud is very different than the color of uh, the sun when it's out directly even if it's not hitting in directly it's just it bouncing around yeah <clears throat> so the lack of control you know because of the floor that we're on and because it's a, you know, a, a hotel, it's, you know, outside of each window, there wasn't a place to put a condor with a light, you know, it was really like very restrictive. So n- I would say 75% of the time, 80% of the time, there's no lights actually. And I, so I'll, so I'll continue, which is that each, each room has a very small balcony, most of them with, with not enough room to even hide a light. Um, some of the bigger suites, I was able to like, hide a, a, you know, like a 4k or something outside, um, usually bouncing into a mirror because once you have a light that's that close to a window, it tends to look like a light. So often I'm bouncing that light into a mirror to get a little more distance. Um, you know, so that the throw of the light is a little bit longer, which makes it feel a little bit more like what's happening in the natural world with the sun. Um, but there was rarely enough room for that to happen. You know, it's like you're i'm either looking out the window often you know because i i like to see i like to see windows and in my frames um so i'm either looking out or you know there isn't enough room to do it period so you know the low ceilings was were tough so i uh with the key grip manny duran who i love and adore and somebody i've worked with a lot um Developed a system to basically uh, tack up Astera tubes, you know. And uh, Asteras are these great new devices. Maybe they're not that new at this point, but you know, Astera tubes, which are color controllable and in d- fully dimmable. Um, so, so with his help, we built some boxes for Astera tubes, which were you know essentially like a little box with an egg crate on the front of it, and and then we put up little tacks like all around the corners of the room. So that these things could just kind of get tacked up and taken down very quickly. So we would go into a room and these asters would basically be kind of like not always 360 ringing the room, but I would pick like three, you know, I knew which way I was going to be looking. So usually like, you know, if it was this room, I'd pick the window side and put them, put them up, you know, from the window side and then wrapping around, um, so that I would have a little bit of something to play with to help wrap the light around, you know, and, and often, yeah. You know, once you get into closer work, you can bring in something on the floor, or, you know, do something, bring in a diffusion frame or <clears throat> put a tube that's a little lower, or put a sky panel that's a little lower. But, you know, if you're in a shot that's sort of swinging from one side of the room to the other and handheld, as we were for most of it, you know, I'm the creator of my own misery. I could have just said, no, we're not going to shoot this handheld and put it on a sticks and we'll do this and we'll do the reverse, But I I really operate from the philosophy of the most important thing that I first priority for me as a cinematographer is the how the camera moves and the camera's relationship to the actors, you know, and that I prioritize that over the lighting. And if the lighting suffers, then, oh, well, I have to figure it out. You know, I either have to, like, make it work on set or fix it as much as I can in the D.I. Um, But I I'm just somebody that prioritizes, like, how we're telling the story with the camera (laughs) over the lighting and I'll I'll figure out the lighting. Like, it'll be fine. Whatever it is, uh, it's not going to be that bad, (laughs) you know? And if it is, then I'll just cry about it later.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Complain about it later. Um, Well, a lot of these interiors, there are moments where the sun is peering through. It's a sunrise, it's a sunset. Are even those moments actual? Like, were you actually waiting for the sun to rise to get some of those sunrise shots of people waking up with the sun peering through?
0: Wow. Uh, Not all of them. Uh, it really depends on the scene, but yeah, some of those, I mean, again, a lot of those are, uh, a mirror, you know, uh, an HMI bounced into a mirror because that was the only way that I could get sort of a shaft of light. You know, if you put a light right up against a window as it comes in, it spreads out, you know, so you you can just see, uh, oh, that's a light, you know, I mean, it just looks like a light as you know, as it spreads. So, you know, using a mirror, getting that extra distance. So often a lot of those things, you know, people waking up, that's, a, that's an HMI bounced into a mirror. Or if we got really lucky, it was actually the sun. Um, you know, it's, it's all about how you, how you frame things and um, trying, trying to create enough, just enough space with the frame to be able to hide a light in there.
1: Did you um, take over the entire hotel? Were there no ge- no real guests in it at all? It was The whole thing was a set?
0: Um, so the beginning of the shoot, we we owned the whole to- hotel. There was no other guests there. And that was about half of the shoot or a third of the shoot. And then slowly, you know, uh, guests started coming. It was Thanksgiving and there were some guests coming and we slowly got kind of pushed into a corner of the hotel. Mm. Um, you know, in the beginning, we sort of did all of our stuff that we needed to do that was sort of spread out in the hotel. And then we slowly kind of shrunk and shrunk and shrunk. But you know, we started out and we were this thing was shot in a bubble. And even as other guests came in, we were encouraged to not associate with them and to keep our distance. And we had our own eating areas and um, you know, we were encouraged to not hang out by the pool uh with them. And you know, we sort of hung out at the beach and, you know, tried to tried to stay as a unit, uh, beyond. And it was sort of like, you know, very similar to like the NBA bubble where it's just like, you guys are all here together and we all got tested. you know, we're all getting tested four or five or 20 times a week. I don't know. I lost track. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah, I can imagine, um, in Ozark, you did quite a bit of work on the water and in boats. I see a little bit of work on the White Lotus as well. Did you feel kind of uniquely prepared for the White Lotus, you know, boat and water scenes because of your experience with, with Ozark? Or were there new challenges, <laughs> new lessons learned?
0: I, I don't think that you're ever prepared for anything. You know, I think you just <laughs> kind of come in with lessons learned and you know, what, you know what, you know what didn't work last time. And you start thinking that maybe what worked last time will work this time, but don't ever get too cocky um because you'll get smacked down really hard. I mean, my, I would say my my approach on this show was very uh different in some ways. Like uh, on Ozark we do a lot of stuff on lakes where there's no waves um and we had access to gear which is like, you know, a crane loaded onto a boat uh onto kind of a fast boat. Um, you know, so you can maneuver kind of quickly and get the crane wherever you want and because of the telescoping nature of the crane, you can adjust you know where the where the camera is at any given moment and we just didn't that wasn't the approach here you know we were in hawaii we we're out on the ocean uh the swell was unpredictable mm-hmm. and you know essentially what i did is i rigged uh you know frank larson who's a camera operator on the show uh rigged his ronin uh to kind of a fast boat and we did some of the same stuff but you know um, I would say that most of the water work that's sort of wider shots was, was done with a Ronin. Um, and, and the rest of it was like handheld, you know, I just kind of leaned into, you know, when you see Quinn, uh, paddling with the guys in the boat, like that's just Frank sitting in the, in a paddle boat, uh, facing backwards, you know, and, a, wow. and, in, and, the AC sitting in one seat behind him pulling focus. And, you know, it's really just was much more of a sort of rugged approach um and and all of the all the other stuff i've just found that you know being handheld on the on a boat is probably the best approach you know um you know occasionally kind of lock the camera down but but mostly it's it's handheld to sort of adjust and be with them on the boat there's it's very unpredictable but uh i'm just glad it worked (laughs) you sort of (laughs) just pray you always just kind of pray when you're doing stuff out on the water
1: yeah, did you have any big like disasters on this shoot? Did you have any like major issues, equipment breakdowns or problems or anything like that?
0: I mean, I think the only the only problems that we had on the show were some, you know, false positive COVID scares. Um and that was really the only the only issue. Um I think that I was always constantly making the assistants, you know, my, my first assistant really nervous by where I was putting the camera. Um, Mm. we definitely had a couple, you know, underwater housings that were not waterproof. Uh, (laughs) so, so there was a couple times where there was some water that was definitely really close to the camera. (laughs) Uh, yeah, there was definitely, you know, there was, you know, um, there was a lot of times where I was getting... I really wanted the, the water, you know, the camera, you know, um, right next to the water, you know, right at the water line. And yeah. so, you know, just kind of pushing that. And there was definitely some time that some water got in the camera a little bit, but not enough to not enough to end our shoot.
1: I have to ask you about the sunset in the scene where... I don't... I'm so bad with names. The, the young... The teenage son... When he goes out on the beach to sleep, he leaves, he leaves the apartment. He leaves the, um, the suite and goes out on the beach and the sun is still in the process of setting. And you, uh, it seemed like it was already nighttime before he even leaves the apartment. So I was wondering to myself, like, were you guys doing a play on kind of, Playing, leaning into that being uncomfortable, not really knowing kind of where you are in time and space, because maybe your memories are murky, and you, you know what I mean. You're you were talking about evoking memories and your cinematography, like, yeah. was that purely just leaning into the fact that maybe we don't quite know what time of day it
0: is? It's it's always it's always summer and sunset in Hawaii, man. Yeah, <laughs> I mean. Like... I don't know how to I don't know how to answer that question without incriminating myself. So I'll just I'll just plead the fifth on that well, one. Well, we're
1: here for the incrimination. <laughs> we are here for it.
0: Yeah, I mean I think that, you know, yeah, I'm not going to answer that one, dude. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I'm going to come up with my own storyline for it, which is that you were trying to make us not totally know exactly what time of day it was. <laughs>
0: Yeah. I, you know, I think it's, I think it's ambiguous and it's always sunset in Hawaii. You know, it, it it really is like, you know, does, does it bother most people in the audience? You know, you noticed it. So sorry.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The lack of an answer is all the answer we need. I love it. (laughs) That's you. You left just enough room for rumors to grow.
0: I, I love I, that. I, I, I think it's you and ten other people that care, so I'm I'm gonna sleep okay at night.
1: <laughs> well, I'm glad that I'm one of those ten. I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, they probably I, are all listening to this show too.
0: <laughs> listen, I think it comes back to what I was saying before: is that I think it's my job as a cinematographer to make something that flows and feels like a whole. Um, yeah, and I and I could have I could have you know if you want the real answer, I'll, I'll just yeah, be who really cares? Honest. Just I I could have put up a, an 18k. And lit the beach so it looked like quote unquote night. And you wouldn't have seen the water because it would have been pitch black out there. So, unless I'm going to put a barge on an 18, you know, an 18K on a barge way out in the water and, and skip it off the water and then adjust the frame so that I don't see it or wipe it out with VFX and put a moon there so that there's some excuse for there being a reflection on the water, it would basically be a shot of a kid walking off into blackness with some fake moonlight coming from an 18k you wouldn't um, see the
1: whale which and is you, an important you, you part wouldn't
0: it. see the whale so my philosophy is like i'm going by the path of least resistance and and i want to create a feeling and a vibe and a, and a continuity and while the light is not perfectly continuity and there is some light in the sky which suggests that it was sunset which it was when we shot it um the more important the priority for me is creating a mood and a feeling that tells the story so while that shot is not technically perfect, I don't care. You know what I, I mean? Like that. I, I because I because I, I think it's my job to tell a story, and if I'm telling you a fable, and you know I turn the page in the book, and there's a shot of a magical uh, castle against the sky, you know, um, I'm not interested in the kid who says, "Well, why is the?" It it's it's supposed to be nighttime. Like, why is there? Why is there color in the sky behind the the, the palace? Like. I, I want to be the kid and I want to talk to the kids who are like, yeah, like that's a beautiful castle. You know what I mean? Like that that's really a magical place and I want to I go there and I want to like be part of that story. So I think that that's my job as a cinematographer. And I really respect the people who are very like strict and didactic and like, no, there should be no light in the sky or it should be this or it should be that. I really respect those people, you know. Uh, somebody like Deakins is, is a master at it and he's like, you know he i i never forget like he still beats himself up to the day there's a shot in no country for old men where there's like more light in the sky than the next shot you know and he's like in every interview ever he's like oh i i that's a major mess up and i can't believe i did that <laughs> and I, and and you know that's like i'm not deacons man you know what i mean like i don't i don't go through i think i used to really pour through my stuff and criticize myself but it's like d- Are people enjoying the series as a whole and is it creating some feeling um, and some continuity for them in terms of emotion? And to me, I prioritize that over the technical perfections.
1: It seems like kind of a theme in maybe your entire catalog. And certainly this conversation, just you've, you've referenced this idea multiple times of just kind of letting things almost be what they are and thinking about the big picture instead of the small details. And I think that is a really interesting philosophy for a cinematographer. And I, I, I almost feel like there are few that could have achieved the greatness of the white Lotus with the conditions that you were given, because I think you really had to, this project needed somebody with a personality like yours, with a cinematography philosophy like yours to be able to work with real environments. And just have things be what they are. I, I, th- I don't think a lot of people could do that and really bring the best out of it.
0: Well, I really appreciate you saying that. I don't know that that's true. I think there's my colleagues are so talented. Um, I think it certainly would look like a different show, uh, but I don't know that it would not be successful. I think it would just be something different than what I created. Uh, you know, the thing that I will say is, you know, that I didn't mention earlier, which is that the biggest challenge of this show was that we are shooting seven plus pages a day. Um, so when you're shooting, you know, like a show like Ozark is shooting like four or five, you know, a big day is, a really big day is six. Uh, you know, there's some days if you're doing an action sequence where you're shooting one or two, um, almost every single day on the White Lotus was seven plus pages. Um, and that's, that's, unbelievable. that's brutal. And it really is, um, you know, as a cinematographer, you can just give up at that point. You know, you ask, like, what it's like to shoot seven pages a day. It's like, it's by the time that you're shooting the sixth scene of the day and you're trying to figure out where you are and how to how to really do something dynamic for each scene and, you know, make each scene be its own sort of magical little piece in the whole, it really does take that sort of, like, overall philosophy, the, the idea, the philosophy of the overall. Like, how does this piece fit into the overall? And... And letting go of all of your, you know, all of your expectations in terms of like what you thought the scene was going to be and just really leaning in. Yeah, like, you know, I we would get to the beach and I think that we were going to do one thing and, you know, it'd be an overcast day and the blocking was completely different than what I imagined. It's like, OK, well, how do I make this the best version of, of this and just continually show up and be present? For every scene and you're like, you know, you're again, you're in like scene five or six of the day where you're just tapped creatively and you just still have to continue to show up and do the best you can. And you might not, you know, you might not be super proud of the lighting that you did on that scene or you might be you you might go home, you know, they might wrap and you might be like, wow, I wish we did one more because that camera move wasn't quite what I was looking for. Or, you know, the the focus, you know, the rack focus wasn't like quite at the right moment or you know, whatever it is, or, Oh, I should have done it on a, why didn't I do it on a 40 mil instead of a 50, you know, I can go home and just beat myself up about it. Or I can go home and say, well, you know, I did the best I could today. And, uh, and I really like as a piece of the whole, does this fit as a piece of the whole and just be proud of the work that you did, you know, and, and you have a, you have a team of people that are, like killing themselves for you. You know what I mean? My crew works so hard for me. Like, I have to say like, this is this, the show and the success of the show is like a testament to my team and like how hard they worked. I don't do very much on set. You know, I operate the camera once a day. Um, I move a flag once a day, you know, like I, I don't do very much. Like I try to inspire my team to do their best work and, and sit back and really look at the whole and, is this is this working and when you're shooting seven pages a day and you're constantly getting hammered by weather changes and uh blocking changes and you just you, you never really know it's like you just have to sort of trust yourself and do the best you can every day and i'm i'm just glad that people like the series I, uh I, um, I hope that people appreciate the cinematography but more than the, c- the cinematography i think it's important that they like enjoy the show and you know that you're, you're entertaining people it's it's a powerful thing to be able to enter- entertain people, you know?
1: Yeah, you certainly are entertaining people. The, the show is, oh my God, a I, I hit. Everyone's talking about it. Um, what satisfaction to just have, have done all that work, come out of the bubble, and know that everyone is really enjoying the show. It's awesome. And there's got to be a season two coming up, which I'm curious, uh, have you already been in talks about a season two with the show? I know they're, they're what I was reading is that they were thinking different location, different cast, um, is it the same for the crew too? Different everything?
0: Um, I mean, I've been talking to Mike about uh, potentially doing season two together and I, I, don't, know, I don't know what the future holds for, for us, but I certainly love Mike and he's such a nut. Um, I, would, <laughs> I would love to work with him again. He's such a, like interesting, unique human being and, and such a beautiful soul. I would, I would love to be on set with him again. So we'll see what happens.
1: Well, the White Lotus was certainly not the only thing that you did that was really cool and interesting in the past year because you also did that um, Paul McCartney video that, uh, oh, yeah. oh my God, I, when I was looking through your Instagram, I'm like, oh my God, he shot that too? God damn, what great opportunities. I mean, we only have a couple minutes, so we can't really dive in, but I have to ask you what it was like working with Paul McCartney and Beck on the Find My Way video
0: um yeah you know music videos are a lot of fun and that's something i just happen to be in la i live in new york and i just happen to be in la and uh andrew the director uh hit me up and was like are you in la by any chance um and i i love working with him you know what i mean he's uh just like has a fantastic mind and I i love you know i think i'm just so i'm so lucky to get to work with like different interesting cool people who like have you know interesting ideas and interesting takes on the world and I get to come in and just offer my perspective and try to help, you know, just try to be as useful as I can. Um, and, and that video was, was insane. I mean, to be able to work with a Beatle is like, you know, I never thought, you know, like I grew up, like I, so when I met, when I met Paul McCartney, I I sort of like, I don't get uh, sort of starstruck, but I definitely just started mumbling something about listening to the Beatles as a kid and being a big fan. I, I don't even know if what came out of my mouth was was <laughs> the English language um, because he must get you know, that all the time. It, I'm sure he gets it all the time because he was the nicest human being. And and actually, like when we we were still shooting and he left, you know, but he sort of like went out of his way to come find me and say like how lovely it was to meet me. And and he didn't need to do that, you know. He's a beetle, um, so it's nice when you like meet your heroes and they're actually like really sweet and genuine people. You know, and uh and that video was a lot of fun. It was it was we shot it all in one day. It was just wow was kind of a crazy a little adventure. <laughs> but but I love Andrew, the director, and I would I'll I'd do anything for that dude. So and I'll
1: put a link to it in the show notes. I'm sure you guys have already seen it, but uh it's called Find My Way, Paul McCartney and Beck. Well, Ben Cutchins, thank you so much for coming back on. The White Lotus is awesome. I cannot wait to finish the series. It's all available now. The finale was last night, I think. Um, it's all available now on HBO. So definitely check it out for yourself if you haven't
0: already. Um,
1: but Ben, thank you so much for coming on. And are you working on the new Ozark, the latest season of Ozark?
0: No, I finished uh, working on Ozark on season three. So I'm, I'm not part of the, the new seasons of, of Ozark, but, um, I know, I know a bunch of the cat, the, the crew that's still working on it. And of course I love the cast and, and Jason, I've been talking to Jason occasionally and, yeah. I don't know. I, I can't wait for it to come out. I, I can't wait to watch it.
1: Yes, same here. But thank you so much for joining us today. And we'll have you back for your next project. I always enjoy talking to you.
0: Absolutely, man. Thank you. Appreciate it.
1: All right. I want to thank Ben Cutchins for coming on the show today, talking about the White Lotus, which I absolutely love. And I tried i tried desperately to avoid spoilers in my prep because I haven't seen the whole thing yet. But I really, really love it. And I cannot wait to hear what you guys think. So please let us know in the comments wherever you are watching this or listening to this episode. Thanks, Ben, for coming on. I also want to thank our producer, Connor Crosby from IgnitionVisuals.com and Dave Siegel from Siegel Sound. He mixes and masters and makes the show sound so good. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube, of course. Uh, if you're listening to me right now, you can actually hear... I'm sorry, if you're, if you're listening, you can see me and see our guests by watching the episode on YouTube. So check it out. All Things Go Creative Show at gocreativeshow.com. And if you're interested in what I'm doing, you can find me at Ben Consoli, B-E-N-C-O-N-S-O-L-I on Instagram and Twitter. I post all sorts of behind the scenes of what I'm working on with my production company and of course, Go Creative Show stuff as well. Thank you for joining us today and we will see you next week on another episode of the Go Creative Show podcast for filmmakers.